0: Hello, my name is Emily. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalms 133, 1 through 3. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling from Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore.
1: The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Eric, and the New Testament reading is found in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. You know that when you were Gentiles, you were often misled by false gods that can't even speak. So, I want to make it clear to you that no one says Jesus is cursed when speaking by God's Spirit, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are different ministries and the same Lord, and there are different activities, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good the word of the Lord.
0: Hi, my name is Anne. Please stand for the gospel reading. Found in John seventeen, verses twenty through twenty six. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord
2: Well, good morning, church. It is great to be back with you today. Um, My wife and I, and our two older children, were. Uh, guests last week of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Many of you are familiar with the good work that they do all around the world. And they've uh, actually, they've got this program for developing younger leaders called Envision. And uh, so they had a summit of all of their uh, young uh, leaders at, um, well, it was in Paris uh, last week. And they asked me if I would come and speak to them three times. And for that, I'm very grateful. Um, but it's great to be back, and I, I don't know if you know this, but Brian Hare, where are you, Brian? Hey, hey Brian, you're right here, right in front. So Brian Hare, along with Carson uh, Nyquist, who's a member here, they work for this uh, part of the CMA, they work for the Envision uh, group that's doing this development, investing in uh, the next generation of leaders. So they're doing great work. So it was fun to be on the other side, not, not the other side of the world, but to be somewhere else and to have New Life downtowners, all of us together worshiping and all that. So we had, I spoke three times and then we had three very, very full days of um, sightseeing. So, uh, but I have to say, I, I, in all of it, it is so wonderful, I think, the feeling of being back with you on a Sunday morning and even just in that opening song this morning. Uh, there's something beautiful about the body of Christ and I'm thankful that this is uh, the church that I'm part of, that I have been called to, and uh, it's a joy to be with you each week. I want you to know that. So I'm here for a couple more weeks, and you know, and then I got to go help the main campus in June because Pastor Brady's taken a, a, a sabbatical. We believe in sustainable rhythms for all of our leaders here at New Life Church. I think that's a very important thing. It's one of the things Pastor Brady doesn't just teach, but models. And so he, at once every seven years, every person, every Full time staff member gets an extended break. And, and Brady's never taken one since he's been here. It's been seven years. So he's taking the whole summer to rest and reflect and recharge and, and focus. And so a number of us are com- going up to fill in. And so I'll go up a couple weeks in June to fill in and, and all of that. But I say all that to say we're part of a great church. We're in this for the long haul. And we, we do these things so that we can make it. We're not here to have a burst of spiritual energy and then kind of fan out or burn out. You know, we want to last, and uh, that's the goal. Okay, so we are going to wrap up in the next few weeks here this, this series that we've been in through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we started, we started this er, earlier this year, I think in January, and we did the first eight chapters. We took a break for Lent and Easter, and now here we are, and we're, we're coming towards the tail end of it. Today, we're actually going to combine two chapters together, gasp. Uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can kind of turn there and you can, you can kind of earmark both the chapters 12 and 14. We'll come back to 13 next week and then jump back to 15 and finish out 15 and 16 um, after that, The title of the series has been Church in the City because the question that we've been wrestling with through this series is what does it mean to be the people of God in the midst of a culture that does not acknowledge Jesus as Lord? What does it mean to be the church in the midst of the city, if you will, the city of man? And Corinth is an interesting case study in this because Corinth is the first major city where the church really takes root. And there is this sense of which uh, you kind of feel Paul, Paul saying, okay, listen, if the gospel can take root in a city like Corinth, if a church can be planted in a city of this size where trade dominates, where people worship, they worship other idols literally, but they also are worshiping the unseen idols of wealth and status and success and sex. And Paul's saying, listen, if the gospel can take root within this culture, if a church can be born in the midst of this, then where else can God begin to work? Now, last week, Brad uh, did a great job talking about uh, one of the places, or the central place, where the unity among the church begins to um, be manifest. It's at the table, when we come together, a table that could have been about class divisions, but instead was about a new kind of unity that comes only in Jesus. But the truth is, if we were to be honest for a moment, if I were to say, okay, but do you feel like there are class distinctions in the church? You would say, yeah, no, I, yes. And, and it may, may not have anything to do with economic status, it might, but sometimes, ironically, the, the thing that can be the, the marker of, of, of um, difference or maybe different status is actually the way we sometimes talk about the Holy Spirit. And it's ironic because the Holy Spirit is supposed to be the one who unites the church, who breathes upon the church, who works in the church. And yet, we being less than human, what we do is we take even something beautiful, someone beautiful like the Holy Spirit, and use it as a way to make class divisions kind of happen. And maybe you've witnessed this. Maybe you've been part of settings where you say, okay, well, I've got a little extra of the Holy Spirit and those people have a little less of the Holy Spirit. And so talk about the Spirit actually becomes not a means of glorifying God or blessing the church, but talk about the Holy Spirit becomes a way to leverage status. This is why I really understand the Holy Spirit. Those, you know, those people, they're not Spirit-filled So those people, well, they've got the spirit, but they're not overflowing in the spirit, or whatever the designations are, right? And so ironically, the very subject that should cause us great joy in the church ends up reinforcing our worst fears about church, and that is there's a class in citizenship here, and that there are those who are very spiritual, and then there are those who are less spiritual, And so the very spiritual people go to prayer meetings, and the not-so-spiritual people watch the NBA playoffs, (laughs) and we've got these sort of, you know, mental hierarchies where we say, well, you know, if I was really spiritual, I would, and you fill in the blank. Now, this is exactly the sort of thing that was happening in this young congregation in Corinth where they began to talk about spiritual things as a way of marking status. And Paul says, oh, guys, this can't be. This isn't how you should treat it. So right away in verse 1, just want to point out a couple things. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. It's very interesting because the Corinthians talked in terms of the spiritual person. And there are different Greek words, different commentaries I was reading last week point this out, that the Corinthians, when they spoke about it, they spoke, they used this word that spoke about the spiritual person, the pneumatikon, the person that is spiritual. And Paul speaks about it and says in verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts. He uses this word charismata. And think about this shift for a moment, for a congregation that was fixated on spiritual people Paul's saying, okay, guys, there is the Spirit who gives gifts. Now, I don't know if we catch this right away, but gifts are a way of equalizing status symbols. If all of a sudden you have to say that everything you have was the result of someone else's generosity and not your own doing, that doesn't, make you, that doesn't give you any bragging rights, Now there's no longer the bragging rights of saying, well, I'm a spiritual person. They're a less than spiritual person. There is only the Spirit who gives gifts. And so if I happen to have this gift, it's not because I'm better. It's just because the Spirit is so generous. So Paul, from the outset, is saying, okay, let's reframe this conversation. This is not about who's spiritual. This is about a Spirit who generously gives gifts. Now this morning... As we talk about this, I recognize that for some of you, there are going to be a sensitive areas. For some of you, you might say, okay, the Holy Spirit stuff, this is like extra credit Christian life, right? I mean, like I'm going to heaven, like I got that, like Glenn, I'm going to heaven, right? So, so I can kind of zone out, I can check Twitter and Facebook because this is like extra credit and I've, I've never really been an extra credit kind of person. I'm a bare necessities sort of person, right? I mean, that, And others of you are saying, okay, spiritual gifts, finally we're talking about the real stuff that matters. How do I do, and it's like, you know, it's like learning new spells that, you know, wizards use or something, and you're like, how do I do that? Sorry, I've I've told you I've been reading the Harry Potter books, it's a bit on the brain, but... And so this has the chance of either half of you not paying attention or the other half of you paying so much attention that you're, this is it. But my hope for all of us this morning is that we come to maybe a fresh look of what it is that happens in a church when the Spirit is at work. What happens when the Spirit is at work? What does it look like in a community of faith? What does it look like in a congregation? What does it look like when the Spirit is at work? 1 Corinthians 12, we'll start with verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. We heard this in the New Testament reading. And now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. But the, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God which empowers them all. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now skip down to verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to one individually as he wills. We're going to say three things this morning, and from this passage we can at least see these three statements. And I want to put them up on the screen, and then we're going to work through them in reverse. But when the Spirit is at work, the Lordship of Jesus is proclaimed. When the Spirit is at work, gifts are activated for the good of the church. And when the Spirit is at work, everyone is involved. Now we're going to begin with the last one and work our way backwards. When the Spirit is at work, everyone is involved. Paul goes on in in chapter 12 and uses this very famous illustration about the body and you can read it between verse 12 and verse 31. And he says, look, just as the body is one, but it has many members, all are members of the body, though, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he says, look, there's Jews and Greeks and slave and free, but we were all made to drink of the same spirit. And then he goes on, and he says, if, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong in the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And he goes on and starts developing this metaphor and says, look, if everyone was an eye, then who would hear? And If you've been in church at all, you've heard this over and over again. But often what is missed is that this body metaphor was used throughout the centuries, dating as far back as Plato in 5th century B.C., All the way up to Epictetus, who was one of Paul's contemporaries. In other words, when Paul starts talking about the body metaphor for all of us belonging and all of us being one, this was a well known rhetorical device. But here's the trick Paul was using it in a different way. See, there was a famous speech that Senator Menemius Agrippa gave during a workers' strike. There was a workers' strike. And the senator gets up and he gives this speech and he compares the city to a human body, except what he's doing is he's using it as propaganda to get the slaves to get back to work. And he says, listen, the city functions like a body and everybody has a role, and if you slaves don't work, how will the rich eat? (laughs) That's what he says. (laughs) And he's basically using this body metaphor as political propaganda to say, hey, listen, I know you're not that important, but we need all types to make a society work. What? Notice that what Paul is doing is the very reverse. He uses the body metaphor, but not in a propaganda sort of way. He uses the body metaphor to say not that the weak should serve the strong, but that the strong should serve the weak. He uses the body metaphor to say, listen, those of you that are visible and have, everybody knows what you do, you should actually pay attention to those who are hidden and often overlooked because they are just as valuable. Paul uses this metaphor from secular society and says, listen, in the church, we don't speak about one another as a means to let the guys on the top get everything they want. We believe that when the Spirit is at work, everyone is involved, that there's dignity to your life, that there's value to your contribution, that you have a role to play within the church. What's tokenism in the world is actually truth in the church because of the Holy Spirit. See, we can make nice speeches and say, okay, everybody matters, everybody... But it's the Holy Spirit that actually makes that true. Because it's the Holy Spirit who says, no, actually, I am working through every person, every part of this congregation, every individual. There is no room here, no excuse here to kind of check out and say, well, they they don't really mean me. They mean someone else. No, no, you could lead a meal group. No, no, you could help. Teach our children. No, no, you could could encourage one another on the way, and you you can. There are gifts that are at work in you. I think it's it's fun sometimes when I hear people, you know, use church language to get out of contributing. You say, "Well, my gift is not set up," (laughs) because (laughs) I don't think we should think of it that way. Paul's not saying, now some have the gift of being grunt workers and others have the gift. No. In fact, he, remember, he's doing the opposite. He's saying, listen, whatever role you play, there's a gift that can come through as you do it. That it's not the actual act of setting up or tearing down, but it's the people you're able to encourage along the way. So say you have the gift of discernment or whatever, it's as you serve that you all of a sudden say, you know what? I think something's going on in their life. I'm going to ask them how they're doing after this, and then maybe we can pray for one another. You see what I'm saying? That we don't use this as an excuse to check out. We use this as a mandate to say the Spirit says all of us have a role to play. Everyone gets involved. Everyone gets involved. The other thing that I think is, maybe sometimes a misnomer is we... We spend a lot of time trying to identify the one gift or the two gifts that are in your life as if it's like, this is my one gift, and this is the only gift that I will have for the rest of my life. I think when you read this passage, and and you kind of in in this whole setting here, I sort of get the sense that Paul is saying, the Spirit distributes this as He wills, meaning Sometimes this gift may be activated in you. Other times this gift may be activated in you. But we ought not sort of be the people that say, I've taken a test and this is my gift and that is not my gift. (laughs) But instead to say, Holy Spirit, how can you be active in and through me today? And maybe today it looks like this, but tomorrow it'll look like this. Because it is the Spirit who gives generously. Why? For the good of the church. And that's the next thing. When the Spirit is at work, gifts are activated for the good of the church. We're going to read a couple of verses here from chapter 14. Verse 4 The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So, verse 12 So, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. See, when the Spirit is at work, gifts are activated for what? For the good of the church. And then he says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. How about that, Paul? But verse 26, but what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You might say that the sum of this this section here in chapter 14 is that the the gifts in the corporate body are to be done in order and are to be done for the sake of the other. They're they're not a way to display your, 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 your whatever, you know, your gifts, your awesomeness. They're not a way to sort of parade our talents. I want to say this. Very often, the temptation for all of us is to say, well, this church does not let me use my gifts. And I'll press on that person. Well, what do you mean by that? So well, I have the gift of prophetic dance, and this church refused to make room for it in the Sunday service. So I, I'm sorry, is the Sunday service the only room where gifts can be used? No. No. <laughs> You're like hmm, yes, no, oh, yes. and we have this overly narrow way of saying, "Okay, well, this church has a prophecy mic, so they really welcome the gifts. This church doesn't have a prophecy mic, and so they don't welcome the gifts." That's 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 not true. Do you know that? Oh man, this is a whole. This would be a whole rabbit trail sermon, Dr. Todd. I'm looking at you. You're smiling because you. There's a whole thing of saying that the actual preaching of the word is closer to the New Testament vision for prophecy than what we think of as prophecy. That it's to proclaim Christ with the prophetic insight of who Jesus is as Lord. That is the heart of this. So every Sunday there is a prophetic proclamation of Jesus. But does that mean that the Spirit cannot work in you for the gift of prophecy? Paul's saying, hey, prophecy, that's, the, that's kind of the, the main one for strengthening and encouraging and comforting. Do you know some of the best things you can do is to say, Holy Spirit, can you stir this up with me as, as we have uh, conversations with our friends? Can you stir this up in me as we sit with our meal group, as we go out to lunch afterwards? It doesn't have to be weird. It's not the kind of thing where you're sitting at lunch and all of a sudden you go, hang on, guys, hold on. Yes, Lord. Uh huh. Okay, I'll tell him, Lord. What? No. You and I, I've been in those services. You know where I went for my undergrad. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it could be as simple as saying something. Something comes in your heart, and you think. I think this person needs to know that God sees them, that God is aware of their life and their struggle. You're like, oh, that, that's, that's not prophecy. That's like, I don't know. That's, but maybe the Spirit is breathing this to you. And you don't have to say it as if you're Isaiah, you know, or Ezekiel. In fact, it'd be better if you didn't because wasn't he the guy that like, was naked and prophesying and stuff, but... Um, <laughs> You could, it, just, it, could be, it could be very natural and say, hey, I, I don't know if this lands with you, but um, I just kind of feel like I want to tell you that the Lord sees you, that you matter to Him, that what you're going through, he, he notices. Can I just pray with you about that? That's it. That's it. It's as just, it's just simple as that. We get fixated on using gifts to display our spiritual status. And Paul says, if you're really focused on the gifts being for the good of the church, then you would eagerly desire this in all kinds of settings. In every different conversation or gathering to say, is there someone here, Lord, I can encourage? What a great prayer. Could you imagine on, a, on Sundays, because that's the, that's the day when all of us see each other the most. Could you imagine coming to church and saying, Lord, is there someone this morning you want me to encourage? I want to be open, Lord, and, uh, and if you drop something in my heart, I'll, I'll just go share it in a, in a real kind of simple way. Could you imagine doing that? How beautiful would that be? To say, hey, I just want to encourage you. It doesn't have to be, thus saith the Lord language. Tongues, it's worth talking about tongues for a moment. A lot of times it's pointed out that tongues in the book of Acts was... Actual languages, which is certainly one of the ways you can read that translation. Tongues, languages. And on the day of Pentecost, they didn't stand up and speak ecstatic utterance. They spoke a lang- they spoke languages. And it was those languages that preached the gospel to other people. And so a lot of people say, you see, so this modern thing of you know speaking ecstatically, that's not, you know. But the truth is, Paul now in Corinthians talks about tongues as a kind of personal edification prayer thing. And so we're left to kind of wrestle with this to say there's certainly a kind of tongues that doesn't require interpretation because it's in somebody's language. But there seems to be this other kind of tongues that Paul says it's like praying with the Spirit, praying in the Spirit. And my mind is unfruitful when I do this, but I do this more than y'all. Paul's like, you don't see me when I'm praying in tongues. But I do because it builds me up. But when I'm with you, I ask the Lord to give me more of the prophecy thing, so I can speak the word of Christ to you and bring encouragement to you. I want to say that we don't believe at New Life that tongues is the marker of having the Spirit at work in your life. Just so you know that. I know there's been a lot of damage over the years where we say, well, listen, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. That's not what we believe. We believe that it is the Spirit that leads us to confess Jesus as Lord. So at the moment of conversion and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, that regenerating moment is, is concurrent. I mean, it happens at the same time. And we don't believe that everybody needs to speak in tongues. That's also not true. But we do believe that praying in tongues is one of those amazing ways that can enrich your personal walk with the Lord. And it's one of those things where we can say, Lord... Is this something you want to do in my life is this something i can experience i've talked to several people i was talking to a friend recently who said man i haven't really been praying in tongues i mean that hasn't been part of my life for a long time but i was i've been walking through this really dark and really heavy period and i didn't really know how to pray and i didn't have words for it and i just just began to sort of it just sort of came out of me and i felt like my spirit and the holy spirit were communing i know listen I know for a lot of you, are like, this is freaking me out, man. I get that. I get that. It's okay. There's a lot more mystery than any of us can wrap our heads around, and there, there's room for that. We say this all the time, New Life downtown, rooted in history, but room for mystery. Because when the Spirit works, it's not always... We can, you know, we can, so. But Paul's saying, look, The Spirit activates gifts for the good of the church. So think about the things that we can do for the sake of the others. And then finally, when the Spirit is at work, the Lordship of Jesus is proclaimed. Ultimately, the test of this, and again in verse 3, I want you to understand no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The mark of the Spirit's work is that Jesus is always exalted. It's not sensationalism. It's not goosebumps. No experience is an end in itself. I, I have a caution for many of us in the charismatic tradition that have possibly made an idol out of encounters, where everything is about an encounter, an encounter. Do you know, over and over again in the Old Testament, the people of God were tempted to make a place of encounter a permanent place? Where it becomes this shrine, it becomes this place where we don't worship and experience. In fact, what the Spirit does is enable us to confess Jesus' Lordship and proclaim him something far bigger than our lives or our statuses. You know what's interesting, this 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 thing here about nobody says Jesus is accursed if they have the Holy Spirit. It's such a puzzling text. The um, the main commentary I've been using for this is, a, is a, a guy named Thistleton. And Thistleton has a very accessible pastoral commentary and then he has like the 3,000 word version of it, you know. And he says, he's, he says he's come up with, I think it's seven or eight different possible explanations for this phrase because it's a tricky phrase even in Greek. It just says anathema iesus, curse Jesus. And, and, and is it, it, does he mean that Jesus is cursed or does he mean it as a Jesus curse. And he says, look, for all the different explanations I've come up with, with, there's a a newer one that is actually the most intriguing of all. And he points to this other scholar who says, look, recently they have discovered 27 ancient curse tablets around Corinth. 14 of them on the slopes of the Acro-Corinth, you know, that mount where the temple is. What's a curse tablet? A curse tablet... Was It would have the, the name of a pagan god and it would be used to curse your rivals in business or in athletics or in romantic pursuits. <laughs> These curse tablets. And it's possible that Paul is saying, look, the evidence of the Spirit's work is not that you use Jesus as a way of cursing others. Now work with me for a, little, for a moment here. You're listening to this and you're saying, "Why well, I would never do. I would never say, "Jesus curse you. you I, would now, I would never say that." No, that's true. But how many times do we try to use Jesus to put somebody else down? Jesus, I'll use Jesus to gain a leg up in my business." Is that getting a little close to home? I'll use Jesus to make sure I succeed, and my rivals fail. I'll use Jesus to make sure that we win this lawsuit. I'll use Jesus to make sure that we get our way. I'll use Jesus to make sure my competitors don't have a chance. I'll use Jesus to gain an edge. And Paul is saying the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life is you don't use Jesus to lift yourself up. The Spirit uses you to lift Jesus up. That's the mark of the Spirit's work. The Spirit uses you to lift up Jesus as Lord, not you using Jesus to lift yourself up. Paul's saying that's the very opposite of what it means to have the Spirit at work. And so sometimes in our age of revival tourism... There is a way of talking about the Holy Spirit as a way to lift up the name of a church or to lift up the name of a person or an individual. And I think Paul has a word of warning for us to say, listen, if the Spirit's at work, this isn't about lifting you up. This is about proclaiming Jesus alone as Lord. Now think about this. The Lordship of Jesus. What a powerful confession it is. In a culture that used the word Lord but only used it for one person, and that was Caesar. Where everyone around them said, Caesar is Lord. Paul says the Holy Spirit makes it possible for you to say, Jesus is Lord. It is the Holy Spirit that is at work in us, that makes it possible for us to say all the gods that the world worships, all the gods of money and power and sex, all of those gods, those are not Lord. They cannot give what they say they can give. It is Jesus who is Lord. And my whole life will be lived differently because I've embraced the Lordship of Jesus. And how is this possible? Because the Spirit is at work. How is this possible? How can we really live as the church in the city? How can we really live as a people who have a different Lord, who don't do business the same way, who don't treat people the same way, who don't use and abuse, who don't objectify? How do we make sure that we, how, how? Because the Spirit of God is at work in us. Amen? When we welcome the Spirit's work, what we're welcoming is the Lordship of Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, I don't just confess that you're Lord. I want your Lordship to reshape everything in my life. I want to change the way I think about marriage. I want to change the way I think about friendships. I want to change the way I think about men, think about women, think about life, think about money, think about recreation, think about vacations, think about vocation and work... I want, the, I want the Lordship of Jesus to reshape everything. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Remember Paul, before he was Paul, when he was named Saul? You remember when he was so zealous to persecute these early Christians? And do you remember he had this vision of Jesus knocked him off his horse? you remember what Jesus said? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think that stuck with Paul. And so when he says the church is actually Christ's body, I think he's thinking about the time when as a young man, he was persecuting the church, and Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Paul sees this intimate connection between the church and Christ himself. And he says, listen, the last thing you should do is to take the gifts of the Spirit and make this about your individual status and your being spiritual. And your no, this is the Spirit of God at work so that Christ's body is alive and well in the world today. So that Christ's body is working to heal and restore and rescue and save. Could you imagine a church that says, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I'm not going to let the, the, the visible gifts mean that my gifts don't work. I'm not going to let the church be the gifts of two or three, 20%. Holy Spirit, come on and activate these gifts in me so that Christ's body is full, so that Christ's body doesn't have a gimp arm or a dead leg, but that Christ's body is full of life because we've allowed the Spirit to work in us. Could you imagine that? Some of the questions maybe we could ask ourselves is (laughs) really about this issue of surrender. What is it in your life that you need to surrender so that the Spirit can have His way through you. For some of us, it's, we're not earnestly desiring spiritual gifts, like chapter 14, verse 1 says, we're earnestly avoiding them. Because I don't want to look foolish, and I don't want to embarrass myself, and it's all just kind of weird. Do you know, what if you said, you know what, God, could it be that the answer to someone else's prayer or cry of their heart could come through me If I would let you activate my, These gifts in me Imagine that Don't make this about you Either in fear or in pride See there's Two pitfalls to this isn't there The one is to become puffed up But the other is to withdraw and be fearful And oh, I don't want to, I'm scared But both rob us Of functioning as this Body so how could we surrender to Christ's lordship this morning? How could we surrender and say, all right, Holy Spirit is kind of risky. I, I don't know how, how to do this, but, but yeah, I, 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 I want to make way.